Before we get into the Word of God this morning, would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, like the words of that song just said to us, our hearts hunger for You. I trust that is where we are this morning in our own hearts as we open Your Word. That there is an insatiable hunger that we need You. We certainly are dependent upon You and our understanding to understand what You would have for us. Help us to grasp these things that we might live according to them and be in honor not only in word but in deed to Your very great name. So illumine our minds and our hearts this morning as we trust Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's take our Bibles this morning and return to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, we are returning once again to our study of the section beginning in verse 15 and going down through verse 23, and we are looking intently at one of the dangers to us as Christians if we do not understand the doctrine of justification rightly. Of course, we understand justification to be a declaration by God, not something we can earn, not something that we can enter ourselves into by way of our own attempts at righteousness. It is a declaration by God of innocence before Him. We are all guilty because of sin, and we all must be justified if we are going to stand before God and be part of His heavenly kingdom. The only way to become justified is to believe upon Jesus Christ as your Savior, to confess your sin, to acknowledge your sin before a holy God and accept into your heart or to believe, as we say, upon Jesus Christ by faith. If that faith is genuine and if it is true, God knows your heart, then you are declared by Him justified. And we are looking intently into this doctrine and to a couple of dangers that Paul is addressing. We have already learned just how easy it is for us, the Christian, to be lulled into a place in our own lives where we live as if sin doesn't matter anymore. Some Christians will easily get lulled into, and many of us from time to time, if not all of us from time to time, get lulled into this idea that since we are saved, since our sins have been paid for and taken care of, and since we are in the eyes of God justified before God, innocent, that we somehow convince ourselves that sin doesn't matter anymore because we have a view of the grace of God whereby we think that since we stand in grace, our sin really just doesn't matter. Very often what happens is we become grace abusers. That's what I've titled it. That's not a term in the Scriptures, a grace abuser, but that's essentially what it is. We live in sinful ways, claiming Christ all along because grace is covering us. And when we do that, Sadly, God's name is being blasphemed in our own hearts and our lives before others is a mockery of 
the saving power of God to actually change a person. Because of all of that, we heard the Apostle Paul say in chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but rather present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. In other words, in a simple sense, don't let sin master your life. Stop doing that. You've been united with Jesus Christ by means of faith through which God has declared you justified. When he died, when Christ died, you, the believer who believed upon him, also died. That's an actual reality. When Jesus died, the benefit of his death was applied to you, was put on you. You were actually united with him, just like we were united with Adam in his sin. When Jesus Christ was buried because of death, we were buried with Christ. He was raised from the dead to new life. So too, we were raised to newness of life. And therefore, to live in known and unrepented sin is a characteristic of the old life. It is the pattern of the way we were before Christ. And so it is ridiculous to go on living like that. It's ridiculous to think that you can go on claiming Christ and go on living like that. It only proves that those who live that way do not understand justification if they are justified at all. So that was the first truth that we learned, the first danger from this text, becoming a grace abuser when we don't understand justification. But then there's this other extreme, this other danger of not understanding justification rightly, and that is to become anti-law, anti-law people. Or maybe a better way for us to understand it or a better way to say it is to understand it completely as if we are not careful in this way, we become anti-commandment. That's what we mean when we say anti-law, anti-commandment, anti-the way God in His Word tells us this is how you're supposed to live. In other words, as we have already seen, because we are under grace as Christians, we know that, we stand in grace, Paul said, we live in grace. Grace reigns, he said in chapter 5, verse 21, because it is grace that now owns us, grace is the ruler of us, we can begin to think that the law of Christ or the commandments have no bearing upon us because grace covers it all anyway. And so in order to combat that kind of thinking in our minds, Paul has been using a shocking illustration. An illustration shocking to our ears in order to help us understand the actual realities of who we are in Christ. He is using the illustration of a slave being a slave being owned by another. And we've seen this illustration throughout this series that I've entitled The Danger of Not Understanding Justification. 
And last time we were here, we heard Paul emphasize the complete change of in the reality of us in being in Christ, the complete and complete total change of the person. In other words, whereas we were owned by something before, but now we are no longer owned by the old master. We saw this in verses 15 through 18. Now we are owned by a new master. We're no longer owned by the old master. And most importantly, this was not something we did for ourselves. It is not something we ourselves, by ourselves, separate of God, entered into. It was something that was done for us. It was the gospel, Paul said in verse 17, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Not you did the committing, but it was God who committed you to the gospel. It was God who worked in your heart. It was God who affected change. That's why Paul says, thanks be to God. It was God who did this. We were slaves of sin, but the gospel of God rescued us from that owner. Because the new owner, Jesus Christ, delivered us to his gospel. And that now we are slaves of righteousness. Verse 18, having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You see, it couldn't be any clearer in the mind of the Apostle Paul. Your unity with Jesus Christ is an absolute, actual unity by which you are no longer owned by slavery to sin. You are now owned by righteousness. So this is our new position as Christians. Our old position was under the owner of sin. Our new position is under the owner of righteousness. And it happened by means of faith, which ushers us into an actual and present unity with Jesus Christ. You cannot be saved without Jesus Christ. Many of us have family and friends who say they believe in God. Jesus says in John 14 to the disciples, You believe in God, that's wonderful. Believe also in me. I and my Father are one. You cannot have salvation without Jesus Christ. Therefore, the idea of living as a Christian anti-commandment or anti-law is a ridiculous notion. Why? Because it is not who we now are by way of our new owner. And Paul has been using this slave owner illustration throughout so that none of us would misunderstand this truth that is being proclaimed concerning the true justification of us in Christ. And thereby, from that understanding, go out and walk according to that truth, obedient to the law of Christ. So there's a very real danger of misunderstanding the truth that he proclaims in verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, because you are not under law, but under grace. You see, we can get very confused if we don't understand exactly what Paul is meaning there. It can be very easy for us to become anti-commandment, anti-law by misunderstanding the truth of that verse. To misunderstand says this, since I live 
in and under grace, why do I even have to try to obey the commandments of God? There is no way to be righteous by them anyway. So don't do it. You don't really need to do them anymore. After all, I'm covered by grace, especially when I sin. You ever think that way? You ever let your heart go there? If you do, it's because you don't understand justification. You don't understand what Paul meant by verse 21 of chapter 5. Sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Because where sin increased, verse 20, grace abounded all the more. You say, well, where sin increases, grace just increases more and more and more. So especially when I sin, I'm even more covered by grace. Why obey the commandments at all? And so you come to verse 19 of chapter 6, and Paul says, this is the reason I've been using the illustration of slave. This is the reason why I have to talk to you in these terms. Because in our own human weakness, we can easily misunderstand And through our misunderstanding, therefore, we misapply the truth that's being taught. Notice what he says. I'm speaking in human terms. Why? Because of the weakness of your flesh. I'm speaking in this illustrative way, this illustration that really shocks you. And to the Roman believers, that would have been even more shocking. Because slavery was such a a forefront of their mind. It's not like us today where that's been abolished in this country. It's still shocking, though. We misunderstand if we don't know what Paul is trying to say. And so Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. You see, we can easily think that since we are under, not under the law, as verse 21 of chapter, or 20 of chapter 5 says, at least by way of the requirements to try to gain righteousness, we're not under the law. There's no one who is justified by the works of the law, the Scriptures tell us. If someone was attempting righteousness by the law, there's no way to do it, and we're not under that anymore. We can easily think, then, that because we're not under law in that way, that as a Christian, we're just free to live in any way we desire. It's a big movement today, by the way. It's a big thing in evangelicalism today, especially in the younger reformed group to be anti-law, to just go hyper-grace like I was what I call it. It's really just the emerging church on new levels. The emerging church is not something that you ought to go for. Redefining the doctrines of Scripture in ways that are subtle and undermining. And Paul's whole point is to show that we have been freed from the law as an attempt or an attempted means of attaining righteousness. We have been freed from that. In order to be freed up and equipped by God to actually obey the law of our new master. In other words, there is a kind of slavery in the Christian life. I don't like to actually equate those terms together, but that's the reality. There is a slavery, a kind of slavery in the Christian life, but it's not like the old slavery. 
This new slavery is still slavery. It's still ownership, but it is not slavery in an identical way as the old slavery. It's similar, but it's different. In other words, slavery to sin was being under a dictator. When we were slaves of sin before salvation, we were slaves of sin. It owned us in every way, and it is a dictator, and a dictator of the worst kind. You read about dictators around the world. Sin is the worst kind of dictator. Sin rules every moment. Every moment. Not one moment. It is not ruling today. Sin is... As the old owner rules it all. When Adam sinned, we all sinned in Adam, and sin ruled every minute after that. Until Jesus Christ came and rescued us. And so where under the dictator of sin, sin ruled every moment, there is a difference under the slavery of righteousness. There is a slavery and freedom. Under sin, we were not free in any kind of way, to do whatever we wanted to do. We always did what sin wanted to do, and however it manifested itself within our members as we offered our members as slaves to sin. And yet, under righteousness, we have a slavery and a freedom. Rather than being compelled to obey by the dictator, now we are compelled to obey out of love. Whereas by sin, we were, we were always doing that. It was always compelling us. It was always driving. And yet now under righteousness, we are, we are compelled to obey out of a slavery and freedom which is born out of love. Love has changed everything for us. And isn't it even true in our own humanity? When you love something, when you truly love something, what do you do? You live for it. You live for it. And in that sense, you are a slave to it. Love controls you. If you love something here on this earth, love controls you. You are owned by that love. Love drives you. You are a slave to it. So under one kind of slavery, under sin, we are made to obey. In other words, you could choose no other thing. You sin. In every kind of way. But now, in Christ, under righteousness, because of love, you are now a willing slave. Whereas before, you were a directed slave, you were a a conquered one, now you are a willing slave. So there's a massive difference between the two. That's what Paul's highlighting and desiring us to understand. He doesn't want us to get the idea that in Christianity there's no slavery. That under Christ, because you've been freed from sin, that under Christ, because you are justified before God, that you're innocent in the sight of God, that there is no slavery in your new life. Slavery has not gone away. Christians, we are still slaves. The difference now is how and why we obey the Master. How? How? And why we obey. Before Christ, under sin, there was no choice. See, people think that, right? I I don't believe in Jesus. I, I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. 
You will only do according to your nature, and your nature is dead. It is under the ownership of sin. You will only do according to that nature. You are not free to do whatever you want. You cannot go against your nature. You will only do according to your nature. You are like the lion who you throw a pile of hay in front and try to tell it to eat it. It will only eat meat. Why? Because that's its nature. It will not eat hay. You will only do according to your nature. There is no choice. But now in Christ, if you know Jesus Christ, because of love and out of love, you have a choice. You have been freed up. Your choice ought to be to obey righteousness. It should not be to obey sin. You are no longer owned by sin. So Paul says, the reason that I'm using this illustration Verse 19 is because our humanness is weak to understand doctrinal truth. In our humanness, we have a hard time understanding these things of God because God's ways are not our ways. His mind is not our mind. Because of the weakness of our flesh, because of the weakness of our humanness, we tend to convince ourselves that God thinks like we do tend to convince ourselves that the way I'm seeing it is the way God must be doing it or the way it must be done. We convince ourselves that God does things the way we do them, that our logic is His logic. And so we can easily come up with questions like we heard in verse 1 and the one we hear in verse 15. Verse 1, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? That's ridiculous. And yet in our human logic, when we hear what Paul says in chapter 5, verse 20 and 21, that we're no longer under sin, we're under grace, we can come up with questions like that because we think God thinks like we think. So we ask the foolish question, well, gosh, if I'm under grace, why don't I just go sinning? The grace, I'll help God. I'll increase the grace. Ridiculous. Okay, then we say, if I'm, not, if I'm in grace and I'm not under law, then verse 15, then I'll just sin because I'm not under law, but I'm under grace. Ridiculous. You're not free to just go do whatever you want. You have a new owner. And Paul says, don't get in your mind that when you think of the truth of justification, don't think that you are now free to do whatever you want to do or could do. Don't think like that. Nothing could be farther from the true understanding of justification. You are not free. You are not free to do whatever you want to do. But you are free to actually do what God wants you to do. And that flows from a love of God. See, this obedience is God's means of producing His desired will in us. What is His desired will? We heard it from 1 Thessalonians. Your sanctification. That word, hagiasmas, holiness. God's will for us is to be holy. We are holy positionally because of Jesus Christ. We will be Forever holy with God because of our future glorification, which in the mind of God is an accomplished reality, in fact, already. But God wants to now practically, in practice, make us 
holy. Our sanctification is his will in and for us. He desires our holiness. Be holy, for I am holy, he commands. The reality is that what we obey, to that we are a slave. Each kingdom produces something with us. Kingdom of sin, kingdom of righteousness, each one produced something. Notice again verse 19, Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of our abilities to understand this. We need the illumination of God. We need to understand these things. For just as you presented your members, slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now... In other words, now being justified in Jesus Christ, now having all the benefits of being in Christ, now being equipped to do what's right by being in Christ, now because the love of God has flowed to you in miraculous ways through Jesus Christ, now out of love for God, do what? Now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in what? Sanctification. Holiness. Holiness. And the reality is that what we obey to that we are slaves. Present yourselves to the commandments. Present yourselves to obedience, to righteousness, resulting in your holiness. In other words, because verse 18 is true, having been freed from sin, that's That means you have been with continuing results since you are actually free from sin and became slaves of righteousness. Since that is true, give yourselves completely to obedience. Stop dabbling in the world of your old life. Stop dabbling in the world that produces lawlessness, anti-commandment, anamia, no law. It is obedience to the things of God which God uses to produce in your life practical holiness. Present your members. That's obedience. All of your faculties, who you are, mind, will, your body, present all of that to righteousness resulting in holiness. You see, I think this is sometimes where we as Christians get all tripped up. This is where we find ourselves in trouble at times because we convince ourselves as Christians we understand God's making us holy, but we convince ourselves that holiness in practice of our lives has nothing to do with us. God makes people holy, and so we convince ourselves, yes, okay, since God makes people holy, my practical holiness right here, right now, my victory over practices and things that I should not be doing isn't done by me by my own actions. We think, we've convinced ourselves that we, if we just go to God in prayer and we say, God, please help me be holy, and then we get up from our prayer and we go with life like we always have, that somehow, miraculously, poof, We're going to be holy. That that sinful practice that we've been doing, that one that we can't seem to get past, that, that, that weakness of ours that we're having so much trouble going through, that, that somehow, since I prayed, that my life is going to be righteous in practice and my sinful habit will be gone just because I prayed. 
Now, I'm not undermining prayer by any means. We are all dependent upon God. We have to go to God. And yet, right here, we are reminded by the Apostle Paul that practical holiness, sanctification in your life comes about not by God alone changing your actions. No, it comes by means of our obedience to Him, which is by means of His equipping us for holiness and for obedience because of Him justifying us in Christ by faith and equipping us with the power of the Holy Spirit to actually obey Him by love. See, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, and the reason sometimes we are losing and we're not having victory is simply because we have refused to obey He says, listen, present yourselves, your members, who you are in your personhood to righteousness, which results in your holiness. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10? Paul said, for we are his workmanship, that is God's, we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we, who's the we? We, his workmanship, his children, those whom he justified, so that we would walk in those good works. We have been created for good works. What are those good works? What are they? Well, I want to take us just through some some passages so that we can kind of see this idea flow through Scripture. Matthew chapter 5. That's where we'll start. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, verse 13, he wants to say, listen, you, you are disciples to the world, right? We're we're those who, who are to tell the world about who we are. You are the salt of the earth, verse 13. Okay, just telling us our condition. That's who we are. We are the salt of the earth. In Christ, we are the salt of the earth. We have a preservation mechanism called the gospel that we are to go out with. And so, what does he say? What are the good works? Verse 16, let your light shine. You're the light, right? You are, verse 14, the light of the world. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your what? Good works. In other words, live in such a way that men will see the very profession of your mouth lived out in your life. Walk in obedience to the things of God and glorify your Father who is in heaven. See, by that God is glorified and you are made holy in practice. Go over to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Church has begun. Paul, who was Saul, the persecutor of the church, has been now converted. The ministry is taking place. Paul begins to preach. Peter is ministering. 
36. In Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha. Oh, wait, she's a disciple, like Matthew chapter 5. Here's a disciple who's gone to work, believes in Jesus. Her name translated in Greek is Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. What are good works? Charitable thing, kind thing. The, the, the response of Jesus Christ on behalf of other people. Now, sometimes that doesn't feel very charitable when someone is in sin and you're going to them with the goodness of the truth. They certainly don't see it that way. All discipline is unpleasant for the moment, Hebrews tells us. Sometimes it's the truth that's the kindness that we're sharing with other people. That's the, the good work. This woman was going around not only speaking of Jesus, but she was living out her life in that way. Verse 42, and it became known over all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul, again, sadly, having to defend his ministry with a church that was so beloved to him. He says in in verse 1, If it's superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, no big deal. I'll do it over and over again. But this isn't empty boasting on my behalf. This is all about God. And he said, verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. See, God has supplied. God has supplied, and God has given us everything we need, and so we are simply to obey. Obey what is the good things. Walk in good works. Walk in obedience to the things of God, which are the true things. Everything else is simply elusive. This is the truth. Walk in that, both inwardly and outwardly, obedience to God, reflecting the character of Christ. That's the idea. Now, we could continue to walk through the New Testament. I have probably eight eight or ten other passages here in my notes that I I could walk us through, but for the sake of time, we're not going to do that. You could go to Colossians or Second Thessalonians or First Timothy or Second Timothy or Titus or Hebrews, First Peter, all of those. Talk about good works. The things we ought to be doing. Now go back to Romans chapter six. Because in light of this truth, Paul says in verse twenty, For when you were slaves of sin, Talking about our old life, who we were. You were free in regard to righteousness. That sounds like a strange statement. When you were a slave of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, when you were an unbeliever, when you were not a Christian, when you when you didn't have faith in Jesus Christ, when you were an unbeliever, you were absolutely controlled in thought and deed by sin. You were a slave of sin. It's the dictator. Tells you what to do. You do only according to your nature. Your nature is to love it. You're controlled by that when you're an unbeliever. 
You're not controlled by what controls all true Christians. And what is it that controls all true Christians? Righteousness. Right? So when you were a slave of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, righteousness didn't own you. Righteousness didn't control you. That's, that's the freedom he's talking about. It wasn't that you were free to do righteousness. If you so chose to do it, you couldn't do it. You were a slave of sin. You could not be a slave of righteousness at the same time. A non-Christian does not have a relationship at all with righteousness. That's the idea. You're free in regard to righteousness. So he's not talking about human definitions of morality and rightness. Paul says righteousness. He's not talking about the human definition of what right and wrong is and the, the morality of men, even though from time to time, like a broken clock's right twice a day, even human morality slaps into truth once in a while. Why? Because God put it there. But that's not what Paul's talking about. All humans have a relationship with that kind of idea, their idea of morality, their idea of rightness. But Paul is referring to what the Bible means by righteousness. Paul's referring to what God means when he speaks of righteousness, which is the essence of his own character, of God's character, in whom there is no darkness at all. That's the righteousness Paul's talking about. So when he says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to that kind of righteousness. You were free in regard to trying to attain any of that on your own. What controlled you as an unbeliever was yourself. What controlled you as an unbeliever was your own ideas, was your own thoughts, your own philosophy of life. That's what controlled you as an unbeliever. There is no control of righteousness in you. There is no control of righteousness over you. There is no control uh, of, of you at all. When it comes to righteousness, you are free to it. not a good position, by the way. That's a very bad position. But the true Christian is governed and controlled by righteousness. The true Christian is absolutely opposite from that definition I just gave you. We are free from the rule of sin. You see, we are free from that slave owner. We are now slaves of righteousness. Listen, it's, it's amazing. All men, all people see themselves as righteous. doesn't matter who you talk to. It doesn't matter how bad they are. They may say, oh, I've done some bad things, but listen, I should be accepted before God because I really wasn't that bad. All people see themselves as righteous until they are measured by the only standard that matters, the righteousness of God. When measured against that standard, all men fail to measure up. That's why all men need a new master. We must be enveloped in the righteousness of Christ. We must be, therefore, owned by that righteousness so that we will be slaves of righteousness. Notice. Paul says there is no benefit that moves the Christian in practical holiness 
with the practice of sin. There is no benefit to us as Christians in the practice of sin that moves us toward holiness. That's the idiocy of the question. How in the world can sinning and not following the commandments and abusing grace ever make you holy in practice? The only benefit is death eternally. Notice what Paul says, verse 21 and 22. Therefore, in other words, in light of the reality of who you are now, therefore, what benefit, what value were you deriving, were you receiving, were you getting, were you having from the things which you are now ashamed? What benefit were you getting from the things you're now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. I love the way Paul says that because it's very cut and dry. The outcome of those things has only one result, death. It isn't, oh boy, that's a bad thing. That might not be good for you. You might want to take the other road because that's got a lot of potholes in it. No, it's that is a precipice. You don't want to go off that. That is a cliff to death. It always ends that way. There is never a secondary way. It always ends in eternal death. Don't go that way. Benefit of those things is death. But now, verse 22, but now, having been freed from sin, same statement, same phraseology, same word order as verse 18, having been freed from sin. Now, having been freed from sin, that is your condition in Christ. You have been freed from sin. You have been rescued from that slave owner. The other more powerful king has come in and ripped you from the hands of that slave owner and taken you into his gracious kingdom. Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. You see that? Christianity has its slavery. It is an enslavement to God. Now you derive your benefit. All the things that come with being in Christ. All the things that come with obedience. We are to obey obedience. All that comes with that resulting in what? Holiness, sanctification. And the outcome of holiness? Eternal life. Eternal life. In the end, Paul is saying that the non-Christian life is a completely fruitless life. Fruitless. From beginning to end, it benefits nothing but death. There's no real happiness. There's no real pleasure. It's only death. In the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes, it's all vanity. It's all chasing after the wind. And someone might surely say, well, how can that be actually true? Is it not true that this life does bring some kind of happiness and pleasure? Sounds to me like you're saying that this life has no happiness, no pleasure. Isn't it true that even living as an unchristian, as a non-believer, that there is a sense in which there's some kind of happiness and pleasure? And the answer to that kind of question would be that surely it does to an extent. Surely by God's mitigated mercy and grace upon all as the rain falls on the just and the unjust, there is a sense in which there's some kind of 
reality that all of life doesn't seem at least to be a misery. And yet even those pleasures are temporal. Even those happinesses are temporal. They do not last. Think of all the happinesses you've had in your life. They came and went. Now they're memories. That's not the way to evaluate whether we should choose to do something or not. As Christians, that is not the way to evaluate the path of life. We're not to ask ourselves, is it going to make me happy and be pleasurable for me? For if that was the case, and if I thought, and if God was thinking as I thought, I think I certainly would not want to go any way that would cause me any kind of struggle and pain. What is the ultimate determining factor is not my own definition or feeling of happiness or pleasure. But this one thing. Does it promote my practical holiness? Does it promote my practical holiness? In other words, does it enhance my sanctification here and now? Oh, I understand that I'm fully sanctified in God and glory. I understand that one day I'll be completely glorified. I understand my position before God, but God has me here for a time. I am a sojourner here. My life is to be an honor and glory to Him. I am to walk in the good works that He created for me, to walk in them. So what is it I'm doing? I have to ask the question, not based upon feelings of pleasure and happiness, but rather based upon the reality of does it enhance my holiness? That is God's will for me, my holiness. You see, we cannot be lulled into evaluating life in terms of how I feel in the moment. Or by the, there's nothing wrong with it, so therefore I'll do it. Even that is dangerous. What needs to be the deciding factor for us as Christians is, what is the benefit of it to my holiness? Does it promote my sanctification. Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. Does it promote my sanctification? You see, there's a great value for our practical lives in obedience to the commands of Christ, isn't there? You cannot get this idea that since you are justified and you stand in grace, that the commands of Christ do not matter. That the things the Bible says, the thus shall you do and the thus shall you not do, do not matter anymore. They are God's means. Your obedience is God's means for you to have victory over sin. You say, oh, this sin, yeah, I got a problem doing that. But the Bible says you are to do this. How come you're not doing that? If you're equipped, if you're in Christ, if you have the power in Christ, the Spirit of God, you can do it. So now trust God and walk this way. And when you walk that way, over time, guess what God's going to do? Victory on victory on victory. And that sin that you had a problem with will soon be in the rearview mirror a long way back. Sometimes it will be calling saying, hey, let's go do this. You have to say no. No. 
Our growth and holiness is at stake. Sadly, some Christians remain infants in their maturity. They remain stagnant in their holiness. Why? Simply because they refuse to obey what God has commanded. And so God, out of love for them as his own, if they are truly his own, God, out of love as a loving father, has to bring discipline into their lives. Does that by a lot of different ways. That they might learn to follow him. I'm reading through the Old Testament. God took Israel into captivity in nations that were heinous to them. Why? Because they refused to obey him. Even when they asked the prophet Jeremiah, tell us what God says and whatever he says, it doesn't matter what it is, Babylon's on the, on the heels of them. Tell us what it is, we'll do it. And Jeremiah says to them, well, Babylon's coming for you and he's going to take you into captivity, but don't be afraid. If you'll obey and just go with them, God will preserve you. But if you run to Egypt, if you go to Egypt, you disobey what, what, what I say, and you go to Egypt, guess what? You're all going to die. It's either going to be by famine, by pestilence, by the sword, but you are going to die. And they said, you know what they did? They put Jeremiah in prison. They didn't like what he said. So what happened? God had to discipline them. That's what happens to us. God has to discipline some of us. Listen, this is the way to kill sin. We have to be continually saying to ourselves when tempted to sin, no. No, I couldn't possibly do that. I know who I am in Christ. If I do that, I'm giving myself over to the old master, to the master of sin, the place where I once was. I was under that master, the fruitless life from which I was delivered by my new master. No way am I going to do that. We have to analyze our own sin. Do you analyze your sin in that way? When you sin, do you analyze it like that? Or do you think, ah, I'll just pray about it. I'll just leave it at the feet of the cross, pray for holiness, and that holiness will happen at some point. After all, I just can't do it, we say. Yes, you can. Yes, you can, brother. Sisters, you can do it. If you're going to have victory over sinful practices and habits, then you better get better at analyzing your sinful practices and actually be ashamed of them. What benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? Sometimes we're just not ashamed. Ashamed here is not so much a feeling not a feeling, but it's an actual disgrace. We're disgraced by them. They disgust us. Ah, oh, listen. Listen. I wonder, as I think of Christianity today, have we lost the reality of shame? I mean, you survey Christianity over the world today in the Western world, have we lost this reality of shame? I mean, it's so easy. It seems so easy now to just walk in sin and say, hey, listen, I'm under grace. And after all, the law doesn't matter. I'm not under law. Paul's implying that if we would sense the shame of our own sin, then we would know the victory over it. 
and the fruit of holiness in practice. And still, sadly, we continue to sin that grace might abound. Are we going to do that? No way. How can I continue in that shameful, disgusting practice of sin when it means a fruitless, stunted, holiless life for me? When temptation comes to us, we need to analyze it. We need to ask, what is it asking me to do? And should that appeal to me at all? The right understanding of justification leads to choosing right, righteousness, not the temptation to sin. Why? Verse 23. Because you understand the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But we're not to give ourselves over to sin. It's not what the Christian does. We're not to allow sin to reign in our mortal body. We must gladly obey. Gladly obey our new master, yielding all of our faculties, all of who we are, mind, heart, emotions, our very members of our body as instruments of righteousness. Obedience leading to practical holiness to the praise of the glory of God's grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for this time this morning just to open your word and to be challenged by what you have here. Difficult things, Lord, for us to grasp sometimes, not because you're unclear, but because we are weak. Forgive us for offering ourselves to impurity and lawlessness, just resulting in further and further lawlessness when we have been equipped by faith in Jesus Christ to benefit from all that we have in Him as slaves of righteousness to do what You have asked us to do, resulting in practical holiness. Lord, we know that we're not earning anything before You, that You have given us it all in Jesus Christ. We stand in grace. We are not under any kind of law to attain righteousness. We are righteous before You And so we have been freed up and equipped to do all that you have asked of us. Help us do that as we submit ourselves to you, as we give our lives over in obedience in each way, analyzing the areas in which sin attacks us, knowing the weaknesses of our flesh, Lord, we choose to do what is right, do what is honoring. Lord, help us not to be deceived in thinking this is legalism. Somehow we're earning something. It's not legalism. It's just simply living according to what you've given us. Knowing you're the one who's done it all, accomplished it all, and will work in us to accomplish all that you have begun in us. Until that day when we see Jesus Christ in all of his glory, we will see him face to face and we will be like him. Not God, but fully glorified. 
Thank you for these truths. Use them in our lives for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.